or we have some light blue Bibles that you can take home as our gift to you. Uh, Again, it's going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, and if you could please stand while I read. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That that was was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's please be seated. Good evening, Doxology Church. It's a it's a privilege to be with you, and to share God's word from this very interesting passage. I, I honor you for using this passage as part of your Advent series as you are as we are watching together for his coming during this advent season uh matthew chapter two or at least as part of it is um often neglected in advent series partly because it is kind of a difficult passage it doesn't quite go along as uh well as we might expect for uh the kind of typical season of celebrating the baby jesus and the giving of gifts and uh, angels being heard on high uh, it's in Matthew, in Matthew alone, really, where you see this dark turn in the Christmas story. And it reminds us that as we think about Christmas, as we think about the Advent season and the waiting for his coming, um, the gospel writers treat the Advent period in different ways. Uh, as a matter of fact, I kind of think about how the gospel writers have, you know, approach us in their different personalities um, I kind of imagine John being sort of a philosopher who comes out and he's, you know, how does he want to start the Christmas story? He starts with Genesis, right? He goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Uh, and then if you go to Mark, Mark is kind of like your fast-talking friend who just wants to get all the data out, right? He just, he just hits the ground running. He starts with the baptism of Jesus so they can get into Jesus' ministry as quickly as possible. Luke, however, is kind of more of the physician, right? He, he's, the, he's the man about town. He's a little more erudite. He's kind of apologetic. You know, he'd probably be preaching up in New York City or something if Luke was a pastor uh, today. And, and so he comes, and he's, he's kind of giving us, he's read all the studies. He's giving us all the data that we need. But when we come to Matthew, it's interesting. I, I imagine Matthew sort of sitting at a, at a desk surrounded by scrolls, dusty scrolls and dusty books, because he's recognizing that the Advent season, that the Incarnation, is not just the beginning of a new thing, but it's actually the beginning of the end. 
And he recognizes that there's a whole story that's come before all of this. And he tells the Christmas story in such a way that he's reminding us of what Jesus is bringing an end to. Now, all of the gospel writers refer back to the Old Testament. They all say, as was written, to fulfill what the prophets said. But Matthew does it, I mean, he takes it to the whole next level. And we even see in this passage today in Matthew chapter 2, we see Matthew giving us three different fulfillments, three things or three ways in which Jesus is the beginning of the end. And in doing so, Matthew reminds us that the Christmas story answers questions that we may not be asking, but we should be asking. So let's dive into the text. But before we do, uh, let me open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself, that we can come and find you here in your word because you have found us. As we just sang, you come running after us. You seize us. You lay hold of us. You're the one who knocks. And dear Lord, I pray as we consider your word this morning, that you would, this evening, that you would give us wisdom in it, that your spirit would illuminate it, that we would not only understand it, but we would rightly appreciate it for what it is, the word of God, which endures forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have in this story three different vignettes in which Matthew says this is to fulfill X, this is to fulfill Y, this was to fulfill Z. And in each case, he's kind of developing his argument about who Jesus is. And I'll just tell you on the front end, with each one of these fulfillment passages, he's telling us something different about how Jesus is, and this is kind of unexpected at this point, but how Jesus truly is Israel. Jesus is not just merely one Israelite. He's not merely the Messianic king. He's not merely the prophet or the, the thing to which the prophet spoke. He's not merely temple, right? That's John 2. John starts with temple. Matthew starts with Israel. He says Jesus is living out the story of Israel, but where she failed, Jesus succeeds. Now he lays out three different ways in which Jesus is Israel. And I just want to look at them briefly. The first one is this citation of Hosea 11.1 where he goes back and he says, out of Egypt I called my son. That's happening here in Jesus' life. What's happened? Herod the Great has kind of like a pharaoh, by the way, interestingly, and I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to be thinking about pharaoh when we read about Herod. But Herod has gone out in fear of the coming messianic king, and he said, therefore, let's, let's have a, a genocide of, of sorts, uh, a truly you know, killing a generation so that we can basically save my throne, that we can save the throne of my children for our family and not to be given up to the messianic king. And so he goes about this way in which he is seeking out to kill any child who was born during this specific period of time. And it's interesting that Herod shows that he's acting in bad faith because where did he get this information about the Messianic king? He got it from the wise men, right? So he recognizes that the wise men from the east coming to bear witness to the Messianic king is a sign that things are changing, but he doesn't say, therefore, let me follow this Messianic king. He actually actively acts to oppose the Messiah. And so as the patriarchs do back in the days of famine in Genesis, Jesus and his family seeks refuge in Egypt. 
Egypt, of course, has a long and complicated history in the Old Testament. Uh, Egypt, we often think of as the slavers, right, who held Israel. But we have to, uh, if you read closely in the Old Testament, you realize that Egypt is kind of a, con- a, is a conflicting character. Sometimes Egypt is acting evilly. Sometimes Egypt is acting caringly and, and, and helping out Israel. It's sometimes an aid, and it's sometimes a slaver. Okay, even, in the fa- even at the time of the exile, as the people are being driven out of Jerusalem, there's a whole group, Jeremiah is amongst them, who go and seek their refuge in Egypt. That's where they go to find rest. We remember that during Joseph's generation, the reason why the tribes of Israel end up, the descendants of Abraham, end up in Egypt is because they were fleeing the famine and they were finding refuge in Egypt. So now here we have Jesus go to Egypt. And as he's coming out, Matthew says, That was to fulfill, and then he quotes this very interesting passage from the prophet Hosea, this prophecy that Hosea uses to talk about the restoration from exile, okay? So bear with me for a minute because you have to kind of get into the mindset of Old Testament prophecy and how how it operates. He says that was to fulfill what Hosea says. I'm kind of filling this out a little bit. When Hosea said, God says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, now, if we go back to Hosea, we, we might be surprised to say what Hosea is talking about clearly is Israel coming out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, Hosea's argument goes something like this. When you go into exile, it will be like going back to Egypt and being oppressed there. When you come out of exile, you're going to come out in victory just like you came out of Egypt As a matter of fact, if you remember, if you've read those passages in the Old Testament that talk about the restoration, you notice that some of the authors, Ezra, for instance, puts a lot of import on the fact that they had gold, that they came out of Persia, out of exile with gold. That's that's supposed to make you think about how they came out of Egypt after having plundered Egypt. They came out with all of this gold. They, They did the same thing when they came out of exile. It was like a new exodus. As a matter of fact, the exodus was just a picture of what was going to come in exile. And so Hosea, when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son, he then applies that to the restoration and says, and yet, once again, God will call his son out of Egypt, right? Out of exile, out of slavery. Some New Testament scholars think, obviously, Matthew doesn't know how to work with Old Testament prophecies. This is about Israel. And yet, Matthew is saying that it's about Jesus. However, if I think if you go in that direction that he's somehow misusing the text, you're going to miss a much deeper point that Matthew's going to be, make, be, be, be making over the next couple of chapters in which he's going to identify Jesus' story with the story of Israel. I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler right here. The, Jesus comes out of Egypt like Israel came out of Egypt. Where does he go next? He goes into the water, right? The son who came out of Egypt goes into the water and emerges on the other side, after which the Lord says, this is my son. This is my son. Where does he go next? Having come out of Egypt, going through the waters of baptism, Paul calls the Red Sea event a baptism as well, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 periods of time where he's tempted but does not give in. He does not fail 
like Israel does when she's in the wilderness for 40 periods of time. And then what happens? He returns back into the northern kingdom of Galilee saying, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. See, Matthew is setting up this trajectory of the early story of Jesus' ministry where Jesus is living out the redemptive history of Israel. But where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. He starts this, though, in this passage, this fascinating passage, by citing Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we might remember that when Moses is called to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses is called to tell Pharaoh. Do you remember what the conceit behind the ex- exodus is? Uh, the kind of ruse behind the exodus? It's not a ruse, but it's, but it's, it's, to, it's to kind of you know, uh, initiate the events of the exodus. To go to Pharaoh and say, Israel, get this, we don't think of it this way, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him come out into the desert and worship me. You see, some Jewish readers listening to Jesus talk about being the Son of God might say, we have a Son of God already, don't we? The Son of God is Israel. Okay? The Lord calls Israel his Son. And that's common covenant language in the Old Testament that God would refer to the people with whom he enters into relationship, into covenant with. He would call them his Son. Sometimes he calls them his wife. Sometimes he calls them his Son. That kind of family making is something that covenants do. It makes families just like it does today, right? You can be family with someone by being related as a bloodline to them, but you can also be family with them through contracts like marriage or adoption. So Israel was God's son. David is called God's son. God says, you will be like a son to me and I will be like a father to you because we're getting bound together in this covenant relationship. And so Matthew is thinking of this, I believe, when he cites Hosea 11.1 and says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's pointing out not so much that Jesus is second person of the Trinity. That happens elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, That's that's definitely in Scripture. But I don't think that's what's the focus right now in Matthew 2. What he's focusing on here is how Jesus is the faithful covenant partner. He's the faithful Israelite. He's the one who ran the race and made it to the end. He's the one who sat down with the law and succeeded where all else failed. He's the one who came out of Egypt, went through the waters, suffered in the wilderness, and emerged back in a new conquest so that the light finally did shine in Zebulun and Naphtali and in the region of the Galilee. So Jesus is true son. But he's not only that. Let's move on now to the next prophecy that, that Matthew brings us to. This is the prophecy coming out of Jeremiah 31.5. And this is an interesting passage where it talks about the weeping that is going on in the countryside as the people of God are suffering under the burden of exile, the suffering, the cleansing fire of exile, as Isaiah calls it. And notice what Matthew is saying here. He's saying when Herod is killing the children in pursuit of Jesus. He is extending, he is affecting, he is doing what the Old Testament prophets called exile, captivity, suffering. 
Matthew's telling us that, yes, it's true that back in 536 B.C., a group of people came back from Persia with, uh, you know, Sheshbazar or, or Zerubbabel, and they may be the same person. You know, Ezra and, uh, or Haggai and Zechariah, then later Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, they all came back. They went about the work of rebuilding the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, and doing all these things. But Matthew's telling us, don't mistake that for the restoration. Don't mistake that for the streams flowing in the desert. Don't mistake it for the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant that puts the word of God in your heart. Don't mistake it for the lame walking and the blind seeing and the captives being freed. Matthew says the exile continues even to this day. Even our own King Herod has now become the oppressor. We don't need Nabonidus or Nebuchadnezzar. We don't, we don't need a Cyrus. We don't need an Ahasuerus. We've got our own oppressive exile kings. You see, the cleansing, the cleansing fire that would burn away the dross and the unbelief of Israel in the Old Testament, which was the exile, is continuing until this day. Matthew tells us that, yes, the Lord is initiating the restoration. This is the beginning, but it's the beginning of the end of the exile that preceded it. Matthew's reminding us as we see the Christ child born, as we see him you know, escaping you know, from this, you know, this kind of intrigue, the, the escaping out of the, the grasp of those who would oppress him, uh, having the victory over and over again. Matthew is reminding us the backdrop against which all of this Christmas story is happening is the backdrop of exile and suffering. See, the Old Testament prophets talk about a thing that they call the day of the Lord, the Yom Adonai. Sometimes they say that day, sometimes they say the last day, sometimes they say latter days. All of these seem to be referring to the same thing, and that's the work of God to both judge his enemies and then bring victory for his people. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets talk about the Yom Adonai kind of like you know, a, a, a boastful sports team might boast in the victory that is surely theirs. If you remember Muhammad Ali, the boxer, or maybe, maybe you don't remember him, but maybe you saw the movie with Will Smith. You know, Muhammad Ali was, was so unbelievable. He was so excellent. He was so, so wonderful at boxing that he would even call the round in which he was going to have the victory and knock out his opponent. You know, he, he would talk this kind of trash even before um, the match began and say things like, you know, uh, you know, if he's still up at eight, it'll be too late. You know, if he's still up in the eighth round, it'll be too late. I'll knock him out in the seventh round. He won't be around in the eighth round. He was so unbelievable. He had such utter control of the boxing match that as he was about to knock out his opponent, he would pause and he would tell the reporters to get their cameras ready so that they could get a picture of him knocking out the guy. The Old Testament prophets talk about the day of the Lord much in the same way that Muhammad Ali talked about when he was going to knock out his enemies. It shows that he has utter control. And no matter what happens, no matter what empire rises up, is it the Neo-Assyrians? Is it the Neo-Babylonians? Is, is it the Persians and the Medes? Maybe, it, maybe it's Greece. Maybe it's Rome. Maybe it's Herod. No matter how powerful the global empires are, the Lord has a day. He has a day when that suffering will come to an end. 
and all things will be put to right. See, Matthew, in, in including this, this prophecy from Jeremiah about the weeping in Ramah, he's reminding us what we're going to be saved from. He's reminding us why we need this Israel, why we need this true son to come. So first he reminds us that Jesus is the true son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew says what was true of Old Testament Egypt is now true and perfectly realized in Jesus Christ. We also see that Jesus is the restoration. The, the, the exile has continued until this day, but now we need a restoring king to come. Jesus will come and bring life, bring freedom, bring healing, bring the light in the darkness. Now then lastly, we have this comment about Jesus being from Nazareth. Because as the prophets said, he would be a Nazarius. Okay, I'm going to say it that way because this is the hardest one. Maybe you're familiar with this uh, uh, problem. It's a good reminder to biblical scholars like myself that while we know a lot about the Bible, we don't know everything about the Bible. But just because we don't know exactly what the answer is, it doesn't mean that there's not an answer. It reminds us that these are books written by humans realizing a whole cultural reality that we often don't have access to. But what's going on here? Well, what happens is that Jesus and, and his family continue to avoid uh, persecution because of the Lord's help through dreams and through kind of sending them special messages to lead them away from the persecution that's coming their way. So they finally end up in this town called Nazareth, which, by the way, is not a major town in the Old Testament. It's not one that's mentioned. There's not a clear prophecy that is talking about Nazareth. And it says, and that was to fulfill what was said by the prophets, that he would be one of Nazar, okay? A Nazarene, okay? And it raises the question, so which prophecy is that fulfilling? It's not like Hosea 11.1 or Jeremiah 31. I can't go back and find exactly the quote. And what seems to be happening here, and this is not something that's totally out of the ordinary, is that Matthew is using the name of the town that he ended up in, this town Nazareth. He's using it to highlight what was a very common prophecy about the Israel of the Restoration. Okay? Now to understand how this works... Hebrew is a root and pattern system in terms of its language. We won't go too much in depth. But what that means is that you have groups of sounds that have a whole range of meanings kind of surrounding them. And the sound, that, that netzer sound, okay, they usually are three-letter roots, okay, in this case, so nun, etzade, and resh. That, that sound group, that family, that root, typically has to do in the Old Testament, it's a very common root and the word, many words coming from it are used throughout the Old Testament scripture to mean something like guarding or keeping or watching over. As a matter of fact, it's a root that figures prominently in the Isaiahic songs that are called the suffering servant songs. Remember, by his stripes we are healed. It says that the Lord will watch over him and guard over him. And that word netzar has to do with guarding or watching or keeping. Now what seems to be happening then is that Matthew is saying, look, he ended up in the town that is called Guarded Place. Because the Lord is giving his family dreams to direct him in one way or another. And that's to fulfill what the prophets said when they said he would be the guarded one. Does that make sense? 
It's a way of playing with the term. It's not actually saying he has to come out of the physical location of Nazareth, but it's playing with this term of Christ being one who is guarded and watched over by the Lord. So where do we find those prophecies about Nazar, about him being guarded? We find them in those suffering servant songs of Isaiah. And we may ask the question, well, who is the suffering servant then? Of course, Handel in his Messiah is very clear that the suffering servant is Jesus, right? And this is generally the way that we understand it. And that's true, but it kind of raises the question, how is the suffering servant Jesus? If you go back to those songs that Isaiah sings about this servant who is to come, who will suffer, but who will be vindicated and who will have an atoning death, but he'll be saved from it. In those songs themselves, you know who he calls? The prophet calls the suffering servant. He gives him a name. He calls him Israel. You see, if this is true, that this idea of him being the guarded one, the Nazarene, that's referencing back to the suffering servant songs where it says, the Lord will guard over him and watch his ways and protect him, then this would be another example of Jesus being the true deliverance, the true restoration Israel. He's the one who is purified, who emerges from the suffering, who comes out on our behalf, living the law in the way that Israel should have always done it. Coming out of Egypt and passing through redemptive Israel's redemptive history, succeeding where Israel failed, he's the one who's protected. He's the one who dies unjustly and is vindicated in his death. He is the one who brings the end to the weeping of exile. You see, Jesus is true Israel once and for all. You might say, well, Matthew, that's very interesting. I see you sitting there at your desk with all of your dusty books and scrolls, but why are you telling us this? What does this have to do with us? And this is where I think we have to remember that Christmas does ask questions that we ourselves may not always be asking. Matthew is reminding us that God has been about the work of redeeming humanity to himself from the very beginning. God has, through establishing Abraham and his line, through establishing Israel and giving her the law and even giving her righteous kings and righteous leaders to to raise her up and to, to give her everything she could possibly want, and still Israel failed. Still Israel fell short. Sometimes my students ask me, why did it have to take all this time? Why, why, didn't, why, why wasn't you know, Abel <laughs> you know, or Seth the, the son of God who would die on the cross for our sins? And, and we don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us why all these thousands of years, why, why this redemptive history. All we get is little glimpses. You know, Paul says things like the Old Testament is a tutor to prepare us for Jesus. And I think that's where we start to get the seeds of an answer. What we see in Jesus, the the, the thing that he is beginning the end of, is that he is coming and doing the thing that we could not do for ourselves, even if you were in Israel. Even if you had the prophets, you had King David and Solomon, you had the law, you you had the righteous judges like Deborah, you, you had the people leading in worship, you had the wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Even if you had it all, you would fall short of the glory of God. You see, an Israelite had to come who could run the race, who could get the prize. 
and then could bestow it on us by faith. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that the New Testament is in some way the the Christian Bible and the Old Testament is in some way just the Jewish Bible. Matthew fights against that idea. Matthew says that story of Israel is drawing our eyes to the true Israel, the true vine, the one in whom we can be grafted in by faith because he did what the Lord required of us. And as a result, not only are our sins forgiven, but perhaps even better, his righteousness is placed on us. So that now when you come before the Father, you come before the Father, not as someone who keeps failing, but he just keeps kind of tolerating your presence because he loves Jesus so much. When you come in before the Father, you come in as a righteous Israelite, bound to Israel by faith in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law so that we might be saved and not condemned by it. As a result, the law, the Old Testament, is no longer a cause of shame or condemnation for us. The law is our friend because God is our friend. The law is encouraging. It it, it shows us how we ought to live because we are now bound into the righteousness of Christ, true Israel. So I would encourage you in this as we are thinking about the newness that the incarnation brings, as we're thinking about the Advent season and and, and, and this new era that is inaugurated by Christ's birth, let us not forget it is the beginning, that's true, but it's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of a story that's been going on for a long time before. And Jesus, in stepping into earth, not only is coming in solidarity with all of humanity, he's coming in solidarity with Israel, that we too might be grafted in and counted as the people of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up again this reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to Christ as we see him afresh, Lord. Let us see him as our portion. We give thanks that Jesus does not come to show us the way, but he comes because he is the way. I pray, Lord, that by repentance and faith you would draw us to this table, even right now, in a way that is appropriate, that we might discern the body, and that we might be nourished in the Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.